When I came to Washington, I had a very successful business career. Uh, I had extensive holdings. I disclosed all my holdings to the uh, Office of Government Ethics, and what I did with that is they told me what to divest, what to keep, what rules to follow. The president's daughter and son-in-law are among several prominent White House officials targeted by the House Oversight Committee as it probes irregularities in the security clearance process. My father agrees with me on so many issues, and where he doesn't, he knows where I stand. I think most of the impact I have over time, most people will not actually know about. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So you all know that Trumpcast has a special friendship with beat reporters, journalists, political analysts, and of course, everyone's favorite, FFPs, former federal prosecutors. These are the kind of middle class types who went to Cornell or the University of Wisconsin or Stanford, and those who in general play by the rules and don't go to yacht parties or the Oscars unless it's for a very worthy documentary or inaugurations or Davos. So from the usual Trumpcast guest, you get a view of the president from a crowd that's still kind of horrified and mystified at people who stash money in the Cayman Islands or go big game hunting in Africa or buy yachts for $500 million at first sight. MBS really did that. And there's a huge use to that middle class point of view. I mean, it's my point of view and it's kind of prudish. It's a little like Jimmy Stewart. And it's good for reminding us all the time that cheating on taxes and wives and dodging the draft and paying to get into college, well, that's just not right. That's my Jimmy Stewart impersonation. But lately, we've had another group on the show, namely a few stylish society page figures who do spend time on yachts and do know billionaires and who are no stranger to getting a preview of a Celine Fall collection, say. No resentment here. I'm thinking of Molly Jongfast on the last show and Nina Burley, who wrote Trump's Women, and my guest today, Vicki Ward. Now, I love these writers, and I find them very necessary, and I want to tell you why. Remember on Leon Nafok's first season of the podcast Slow Burn on Slate, the one about Watergate, how the Attorney General John Mitchell's wife, Martha Mitchell, was one of the chief Watergate truth-tellers? It's because she was so close to the action. She knew the scene. She had nothing to lose. And she had access like no one else. Now, sometimes you don't need scolds like me saying, hey, no one should buy an ostrich coat, Paul Manafort. That's just selfish and greedy. You need people who are kind of to the manner born and yet eagle-eyed, highly educated and sharp-tongued and unafraid to tell the truth. Now, these people also dress beautifully and slip right into lunch at the Four Seasons. And they're also just very, very funny. Tina Brown, my old boss and an old boss of my guest today, introduced me to this cast of journalists. She knew that you try to take some of us schlubby reporters to report on the rich, and no one talks to us. But when these well-dressed people go right in, see their friends, and get the quotes, they sometimes even get away with it because they're so likable. So we've had Anthony Cormier on the show before from BuzzFeed. He has a very gritty background and is comfortable with outlaws. So the outlaws in Trump's orbit choose to divide in him. Well, now we have someone who draws the opposite part of Trump's set, Vicki Ward. She gets the ones who want to do all the things like gossip and be seen and talk on serious matters of geopolitics and art. And maybe even with Vicky, be able to refer to some furrier in Dubai and at least be understood. Vicky is simply amazing at getting people around the Trumps and the Kushners to talk. And Kushner Inc. is a heavily sourced potboiler about Jared and Ivanka that solved many open questions for me. I really hope you'll read it. Vicki, 
Welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you, Virginia. It's been so long since we last saw each other, last talked. I know. I can't even remember. When, when, I think when we worked together at Talk Magazine, right? That's exactly where I'm hoping to start, which is <laughs> I learned from Tina Brown, our boss at Talk Magazine, certain principles about investigative journalism that have never left my mind and that I think you bring to bear on the subject of the Kushners. I'll tell you them as much as I remember them. First, she said investigative journalists need resources because enterprise is so expensive. Expensive. We know that. Really she true. also needs an institution at her back because you can get in tough situations with people trying to intimidate you. And you need someone who backstops that. You need fearlessness. You have that. You need an <laughs> elegant turn of phrase. You have that. And last, you need access. And Tina is so no bullshit that she just really thought that access was the sort of sine qua non of a good investigation and often the most yeah. elusive So how in the world did you get access to the Kushners? Well, my mother once said you can never know enough people, right? I think really my reporting began, I didn't even know I was going to do the book at this point, in New York. I mean, you have to remember, Virginia, before I wrote this book, my last book was all about the world of New York real estate. Yes. And so although the Kushners weren't a direct focus of that Donald Trump was in it. I interviewed him for that book. Mm -hmm. And I've known him quite well for over a decade. He did not like, I have to say, what I read about in that book, because I was telling the story of a building, a building and a building that he wanted to buy and didn't get. Mm. But the culture that the Kushners and the Trumps operate in was therefore very familiar to me. I hadn't come across Jared and Ivanka socially in New York when Jared bought the New York Observer. I was on his list of people he wanted to meet. I say in the book, you know, Howard Rubenstein, this PR guru, gave the Kushners a three-point plan to rehabilitate their family name after Charles Kushner went to jail. Mm-hmm. The first one was to buy the trophy building. The second one was to buy a newspaper. The third was to have Jared date someone prominent. But the buying of the newspaper was not just about controlling media, it was to elevate him socially. And I guess I was then working for Vanity Fair and he thought it'd be useful to know me. So I had run into them a bit, but I then did an article for Esquire in the summer of 2016, when Jared and Ivanka were beginning to really get involved in the Trump campaign. And Mm -hmm. to everyone's great surprise, Trump was the Republican candidate for president. (laughs) What was really surprising about this, I came up with the idea of profiling the Kushner brothers, Jared and his younger brother, Josh. Mm -hmm. The venture capitalist. Yeah, for Esquire, Jay Field, and the editor is an old friend of mine, and he was looking to sort of revamp the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I had suggested the Kushner brothers as a sort of cover story it was going to be a not a puff piece because I don't do those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I thought that these were two successful, attractive men in, at the right age for the Esquire demographic. They mm-hmm. were aspirational figures. But by the time I got to reporting it, because I had written the book on real estate, the reporting on Jared was very easy for me to do it. It took like a morning to call around. And what I discovered really surprised me because he had always presented himself as a very soft-spoken, nice, sympathetic person. But what I learned during that reporting was that Jared could be very vindictive and really unpleasant, that there was another side to him. For example, in that piece, I reported how he had sort of interfered with the real estate policy of a different firm, WPP, which was an advertising conglomerate, because he was friends with 
the then CEO, Martin Sorrell, when their real estate group had made certain decisions and gone to their board and got approval to do certain things that Jared disagreed with, he asked Martin Sorrell if he could come in to WPP. You know, this is a huge, enormous behemoth of a firm. And he walked into the meeting and he reamed the head of their real estate group and told him that he should be fired. This is a young guy in his 30s and this is not his business. It was really extraordinary. It showed a very, very unpleasant side of him. And what was even more remarkable was that when this piece came out, Ivanka got on the phone to Jay Fielden and cried. Jay saw through the tears. Jared then got David Lauren, Ralph Lauren's son. Yes. The phone up and the implicate, he was clearly embarrassed to be put in the middle of this, but the implication was we're going to use our money to pull advertising. Hmm. Then Jared told David Carey, then running Hearst, oh, that I'd fabricated my transcript. Hmm. Well, we went through all of this and we ran one correction. We said the Kushner Companies meets every Tuesday at 8.30 rather than 8. How are you going to come back from that? I mean, that kind of correction is just a blight on your reputation. (laughs) But it was interesting. So my antennae were then really up because Mm -hmm. I really had the measure then of these two people. I really felt that they were two people in disguise, that they were not at all what they seemed, this idea that they were sophisticated counterparts to their fathers. You know, the moment that Ivanka started then during the transition, flashing her bangle that we could all buy for thousands of dollars. Or 1095 at TJ Maxx, depending (laughs) how long you waited. Right. But you know, as somebody in the transition said to me, even though she apologized, when you can't unsee it, You know, to your point about access, what was so interesting, Virginia, is that what I found was that everybody wanted to talk about these two. What was really interesting, it wasn't just the Republicans who felt that these two were in the way of their agenda. It was all the more left-leaning people around, sort of the Gary Cohns of the world, who really had problem with their ethics, who really felt that these two people had not gone into the government for the right reasons. And furthermore, all the conflicts of interest that surrounded their lack of proper divestiture yeah. created real, real problems in terms of what guided Jared in terms of his domestic policymaking. You know, I talk about the questions, Gary Cohns' concerns about healthcare, you know, was... was 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 Jared just in there to help his brother's company? Let's actually dive into Oscar because I saved that for the end of the questions because you have to be a real um, obsessive to care about this part of things. Um, but I, I'm one of them, like you. Jared's brother, Josh, some people call him the good Kushner. That doesn't mean that he doesn't. I mean, he's a venture capitalist. So how good is he? But what amazed me in your reporting is I had no idea that a company that he's I don't know exactly what share of Oscar he owns, but Oscar is one of the properties that he's very successfully invested in. It's a app driven healthcare service that has he owns it. I mean, he co-founded it. He I mean, co-founded he it. Okay. And Joel Klein is on the board, right? And he's the person I first heard of it from. I'm actually an Oscar subscriber. I'm very happy with the service. But I had <laughs> no idea that it was the Oscar family's most highly valued asset. It is. Yeah. $2.7 billion. Amazing. And so that family rises or falls. It is not something that is underwater like 666 Fifth Avenue or some of their showpiece places. It's chugging along and growing. Yes, but only Virginia. Yeah. As long as Obamacare stays. Amazing. Or something that's predicated on state exchanges, right? Because I can tell you that Jared Kushner, the idea of a single payer system once came up and he didn't like that. I mean, that would be right, the most dramatic overhaul of healthcare. And it was noticed he didn't like that. And people wondered if he didn't like that because it wouldn't benefit Josh. 
But then on the other hand, he's certainly not with the right wing either. And this is where Gary Cohn comes in. I mean, and Steve Bannon, like counter voices that Bannon on the one hand says, we've got to live up to the campaign promises to build the wall and shut out Muslims and repeal and replace Obamacare. But here's where it gets tricky. I think that Jared, what Gary Cohn noticed, for example, in the the travel ban was that when Gary Cohn, that was kept a sort of tight secret because Bannon wanted the element of surprise. (laughs) And do you remember that they were all out at a dinner, a fancy dinner, I think on the Saturday night? And Jared was actually surprisingly not perturbed by it. Cohn said, come on, Jared, you know, this is outrageous. I mean, come on, we're all immigrants, you know, or from first or second generation, you know. And Jared was like, no, no, the president campaign, there's nothing he could do. The problem was that then Ivanka Instagrammed a picture of herself and Jared all dressed up in black tie. Immediately, they got hammered sort of let them eat cake. Then they were all, do you remember, it was the airports crowded. I mean, it was dreadful. Also, her dress was like the same color as those heat blankets that they gave the kids at the border or something. So there was perfect meme opportunities. Yeah, so this really gets to the crux of it. It didn't seem like it was the policy itself that caused Jared and Ivanka to object. They didn't like the way they then came across. It was Hmm. only after, you know, they're all about messaging. You know, she has this famous quote that she said, you know, perception is more important than reality. Hmm. So it's only after they got negative feedback personally that then Bannon noticed she started to say, no, no, we've got, we've got to fix this. But what was her real motivation? And I think that's what I try to sort of uncover in the book. Yeah, so talk about that. For example, the expansion of the childcare tax credit. Mm-hmm. I think we would all argue that that was a good thing. The difficulty with it is it seems so self-serving for her brand. And she got that in place while she still owned her fashion brand, even though many ethics experts had said, when you go into the White House, you're supposed to divest. And everyone had noticed that every time she met or got on the call with a foreign leader, suddenly trademarks from these companies were uh, from these countries would suddenly appear for her fashion brand. Yes, you could also pretty much click on the outfit and put it straight in your cart, if I remember. And at the same time, she's busy sort of lobbying for this childhood tax credit expansion. Her own label is employing these absolutely appalling labor practices. Mm. Again, it doesn't feel authentic. No. It feels totally lip service manufactured PR. One thing you get at, you remind us and had even still more details on Kushner as kind of among the first of the modern admission scandals. Yeah. He's, you know, <laughs> he's in that golden book. And I want to give some credit to where he went to high school, Frisch, which is a Hebrew day school in New Jersey. They probably have every interest in making it clear that he went to Frisch and he got into Harvard and they have good rates. But they, from the beginning at Frisch, have said this is a travesty. He didn't get the grades and he didn't get the SAT scores and he never should have gotten into Harvard. It interests me that they will go that far on it. But when you point out that he was, it's, I guess, a tracking system at Frisch. Yeah. So this is why I was very careful with the reporting to understand. So I spoke to someone in his class who was in the first track. They were class of 120, roughly five tracks. And he was in the third. So actually, it's possible that his grades might have been okay because the third track was graded differently. Okay. That's why I don't talk about his grades. But what this person was very clear on was that 
no one from the third track at Frisch went to any Ivy League school, Mm -hmm. certainly not Harvard. And when this person did not get in, she cried. In the first rank, right? In In the the first rank. And not only that, the teachers cried. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it is it is very demoralizing. Right. Very, very, very. And also, as I say in the book, what I had not realized till I reported is that Charles Kushner didn't even write the check himself. It was a Kushner company's check. I learned that from your book, too. That's amazing, because by then, Charlie was in the practice of doing the thing that only you seem to understand real estate companies always do, which is just have a million LLCs with weird names and, I don't know, do some kind of shell game of moving money around. How did he do that? You know, he had a lot of help from his brother-in-law, who was also sort of in charge of the money, but it would, they, they were in it together. I mean, his brother-in-law also ended going to jail. But what happened was that Charlie felt that he was the self-appointed leader of his siblings mm-hmm. and that he had made so much money for all of them that he was therefore entitled to spend it without asking them or any of his other partners in a way that he thought would benefit the Kushner family name. Now, what he wanted to do was pay for politicians, particularly Bibi Netanyahu, mm-hmm. and four times cost $100,000 each time he came to speak. Amazing. But a lot, mostly, mostly Democrat politicians who could be helpful to Charlie. I mean, famously, he gave more than anyone else to uh, New Jersey governor, Jim McGreevy. The problem was that, you know, he didn't, ask his siblings. He just took the money from these LLCs. Mm -hmm. As they started to find out, particularly his brother Murray, they were extremely annoyed. Murray sued Charlie. And at some point, what was a private civil case was blown into the public sphere. And Chris Christie, then the New, uh, New Jersey US attorney, started to pay attention, chiefly because he saw Charlie Kushner as a way to get at Jim McGreevy, actually. (laughs) This is when it gets all very, very, very nasty, because the feds start to hear all sorts of things about Charlie Kushner's private life that he definitely did not want out in the public domain. And I think that's part of his thinking. That's why he retaliates. It's not just he snaps. That he and he tries to coerce, you know, he's so furious with his siblings mm-hmm. exposing him like this that he he does this terrible thing where he, you know, hires a prostitute and sets up his brother in law, films it, and then sends it to his sister. Right, it's pretty rough. And you do a very nice job setting up the how the Kushner self-preservation or self-aggrandizement with any means necessary. That's a legacy of what happened to them in the Holocaust and what they did in the Holocaust. Because the family had an astonishing, there are very few stories of this much ingenuity and heroism by suffering Jews. So tell us that story. Uh, I think that's really key. There's a reason that they disdain rules. Mm-hmm. So Jared's grandparents, if they had followed orders, they'd be dead. And I, I think that that is really important to understand the, men, the mentality here and, and the sort of awful reasons, terrible reasons behind it. That in the Holocaust, Ray Kushner, uh, and she was born Kushner, her, her husband would then take her name, was rounded up in a ghetto in Belarus, now Poland. And she didn't just survive the Holocaust, she had to fight mm-hmm. and fight in a, you know, they, they built a tunnel to escape. And the night that they went through the tunnel, 
her brother's glasses fell off and he was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very harrowing. She saw you know, sisters and mother shot in front of her. I mean, it's terrible. She then joined a group of Jews surviving in the woods in extreme cold. And one of them, Joseph, would become her husband. But even then, you know, even when the war ended, it wasn't over. Yeah. And it took them years of trekking, um, years to get to Brooklyn and then to New Jersey. So there really was this sense of you never wait. You don't follow the system because the system is dangerous. You know, and one of the family members talked to me and said, you know, that's why, you know, you don't wait to be accepted by Harvard. You make sure that you get into Harvard. Mm -hmm. The family motto is think like an immigrant, act like an immigrant, but really think about what that means. Mm There's an amazing story you have in the book that I think makes this point about early on when the Ivanka Trump collection markets for it were drying up, partly because of the grab your wallet movement and people just objected to her and thought that one way to sort of boycott the Trumps was not to buy her stuff. And I think Neiman stopped carrying it and Trump was mad about that. And then Kellyanne Conway went on TV and just openly, floridly promoted Ivanka Trump's clothing company, which was gross ethical violation. Yeah. Hatch Act violation, I think. I remember learning that. And then, though, Ivanka went to her father for help on this. I'm interested because that contains Ivanka's relationship with Kellyanne Conway and who's classy and who's not. Tell me the whole thing. Right. So Ivanka went in and in front of a room full of people. So this was not a private conversation. She had a meltdown. And sort of accused, you know, how she was very furious with Kellyanne, sort of embarrassing her. And really, she sort of uh, was out of control. And mm-hmm. her father her father just looked at her and said, you know, honey, calm down. You sell shoes. Oof. And to do that in front of White House staff, I mean, that is a very public rebuke. And that is where he shows that he still has the whip hand, he still has the money, and he's not pushed around by her. I think there was a lot of buy-in from media maybe that wanted to believe this, but that she would be the, remember the whole moderating voice? Yeah, no, and she went went on TV, and I think she said, um, you know, I speak to him in private. But guess what? She doesn't. I mean, Gary Cohn Ah. begged her when over the Paris Climate Accord, begged her. So, you know, Ivanka, I am running around getting people like Jamie Dimon, getting all these mm. business leaders into the White House to try and talk to your father. I'm put, getting ad, you know, ads in big in, in, you know, the Wall Street Journal or wherever. But, you know, what would be most helpful is if you could just go and talk to him mm. and say, come on, you, you, you've got to not put, you've got to stay in the Paris uh, Climate Accord. Mm-hmm. And she looked at him and she said, no, no. Mm. I can't do that. And I think that if you just if you look at Trump's policies, she's had no impact. He's done exactly what he's wanted to do. Yeah. Okay. so do you remember and this was not a big moment in any news cycle, but for some reason I saw I watched a tape of Ivanka and her father on a hot mic by accident before the Republican National Convention. They They were just discussing like the font size on the teleprompter. 
And it was almost like one of those marriage analysis where you know it's not going to work if certain things happen, because I thought he just was gaga for her and he would do anything she said. But she kept making small suggestions about how to organize the teleprompter that seemed perfectly reasonable. And he just said no to every single one which surprised me. And no, in a like mean, dismissive way, like he always did on The Apprentice. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I noticed, I pulled all the depositions Mm -hmm. that Trump children have ever given, because I thought it would be interesting to see how they talked about the way the Trump, you know, how how they saw their roles in the Trump organization. Mm -hmm. And um, what was so interesting was you, you see how they really have no independent decision-making power. Mm-hmm. They have to go to their father for absolutely everything. Um, and, you know, and one of the points that Leonard Stern, who's a, a rival, um, you know, is another billionaire who's been a, a sort of rival and, and enemy of Trump's for a lot, many decades in New York, but he does understand sort of intergenerational wealth and mm-hmm. how most families manage it. Pointed out to me is that Donald Trump gives his children relatively little equity in their real mm-hmm. estate projects, regardless of how much work they've put in. So, for example, Ivanka mm-hmm. was the one who did most of the heavy lifting uh, in Washington, what's now the Trump Hotel there. Mm-hmm. But Trump, but but Donald Trump only gave each of the, the kids, the, the three, you know, the three, Eric, Don and Ivanka, 7% of the equity. So no wonder Ivanka was trying to flog that her fashion brand because mm. for her, the upside of the economics of the fashion brand would have been much greater mm. than what, of what she has in the Trump organization. And, and they're all trying to get whole with this presidency. I mean, every single one yeah. of them. I mean, it seems like the chief policy initiative is, well, either to obstruct justice or to line the pockets of the Kushners and the Trumps. It's crazy. I mean, they just they're so yeah. flagrant about it. It's an embarrassment to all of us. It's just a heavy embarrassment to see this happening. Talk a, a little bit about 666. Yeah, because that, you know, in a way, I sort of feel that in all the coverage, I mean, I've, I've, I've had wonderful coverage, but but this is almost the most important storyline. Yeah, and, and in a way, it's it's kind of been missed mm-hmm. that you know that Jared goes in to this administration with the clock ticking, and this you know six six six. It wasn't just the one point four billion debt. Mm-hmm needed to be repaid this building um would have cost the Kushners far far more than that because of the taxes that would have been due on a sale mm-hmm. the recapture tax it, it was financially a huge huge albatross for them mm-hmm. and by the time Jared goes into the administration no American lender would touch it with a 50-foot pole so he was heavily de- reliant on foreign lenders and you know that gets you into all sorts of you know we have an emoluments clause mm-hmm. in the constitution you know you, you basically cannot be bribed so that is why his foreign policy making in the dark is so so dangerous and so troubling mm-hmm. because what he does is he basically tells rex tillerson i'm taking the middle east away from you 
he starts having all these correspondences, not just with MBS, the future crown prince of Saudi Arabia, with everyone in that region, MBZ, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, the Qataris, and no one in the State Department or defense or national security have any idea what's going on. So no one, for example, knew that Charlie Kushner had met with the finance minister of Qatar and asked him outright for a billion dollars to save this building in the spring of the administration and been turned down. Meanwhile, Jared is pushing the president, absolutely pushing this, make no mistake, the US would never have made its first official visit to Saudi Arabia if it weren't for Jared. He pushed Trump to go to a country that does not exactly share democratic values with us. At that summit, the Qataris, who've long had a a rivalry with Saudi Arabia, notice that they're ignored, they're slighted. Jared has already given them a private reaming that nobody knows about for turning his father down. This summit, remember, is supposed to be all about cooperation in the Gulf, working together. Mm 10 days after it's over, and Jared, meanwhile, has had a private meeting with Ivanka and MBS that nobody knows what happened there because no government officials went with them. 10 days later, Rex Tillerson and James Mattis are at an event in Australia, and to their horror, they learn that the Saudis and Emiratis, Egypt and Bahrain, are blockading Qatar, where where we, America, I'm American, Mm have an airbase that is our security at risk in the region. Not only that, the Saudi and Emirati troops were on the Qatari border. Rex Tillerson knew immediately that this was Jared. Jared had given the green light to MBS. <laughs> or even encouraged him, right? No, no, no. Absolutely. I mean, the MBS want it's all about money. I mean, they'll tell you it's about Iran, but it's actually for MBS, it's all about money. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Qatar is a tiny kingdom. It is vulnerable. It's on an ocean. But it's very, very rich. It's richer than Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. MBS, the war, his brutal war in Yemen has been very expensive. And he wanted money. And when the blockade actually didn't work, the Qataris were better able to withstand it than he had expected. That is why he executed his rendition plan again after another meeting with Jared Kushner, mm-hmm. with no one accompanying Jared Kushner. He rounded up everyone, six of the seven ruling branches in Saudi Arabia. The only branch he didn't round up and imprison and promised and basically extort were his own. Rex Tillerson said to Jared, Jared, don't you think it's statistically unlikely that his own family are the only ones who are not corrupt? But Jared uh, didn't want to know. He was busy uh, getting rid of Rex Tillerson, uh, having him fired uh, because he was an obstruction. The next thing that we know is that the Saudis arrive in America and MBS doesn't like, Trump asks MBS for another $4 billion dollars for the war in Syria, and MBS starts to drag his feet. Mm. Um, So the Qataris then appear, and they feel that money is the only thing they have that can save them. And in a two-week window, these things happen within two weeks, Mm. it's announced that both the U.S. is withdrawing its support of the blockade and that Charlie Kushner is going to be bailed out by a Canadian real estate firm, Brookfield, whose largest outside investor is Qatar, the Qatari Investment Authority. So you can see why Congress is busily, you know, discussing, thinking that they should investigate this. I mean, the the Qataris have come out 
and denied it. Although since my book came out in Virginia, I've had a lot of suggestions, a lot of people starting to come out of the woodwork, basically suggesting that the Qataris are fed up with denying that they had nothing to do with this mm. deal because they feel very pressured and extorted by Jared Kushner. So watch this space. That is fascinating. So that people, you mean they're willing to testify to Congress about it? But, or they? But let's yeah. see. I mean, we have a, you know, we have a long way to go. I mean, you have to remember that there's also a large amount of fear because, because, Right now, our government is run like a family real estate business. Yeah. And Jared Kushner is quite capable of getting on a plane and going over to the region. And we will have no idea what he says or what he does. The debate about whether Trump himself is crazy or crazy like a fox, whether he's stupid or whether he has, Rick Wilson said, a kind of feral intelligence, <laughs> right? And Jared is just something else. I mean, I keep going to the he's number three tier at his Hebrew day school. And it should be noted, my kids are in Hebrew day school and the schools will take anyone because it's a very particular taste to have to want to go to Hebrew day school, most parochial schools. So they make allowances for learning disabilities and different learning styles. So the point is being third there is pretty much like, you know, getting a C. And that is hard if you have every advantage of tutors and everything else. It's like the kids that had to cheat their way into school in spite of having every advantage in this admission scandal. The point is, is it possible, as Jacob Weisberg says, as other people have said, that Jared is actually like he would not score well on an intelligence test. Like, he's just not a bright person. He's not crazy like a fox. He's not smart in some special different way. He just isn't intelligent. Is that possible? It's extremely possible. And you have to remember that, you know, when that, that, that when you go to the Middle, Middle East, I mean, you can have a sort of a banal conversation can end up with extremely dramatic action. It, it, it's a totally different frame of reference. And I think that's why security uh, and intelligence agencies are so horrified at the thought of yeah. Jared Kushner running around because it's like a, it's like a kid in a, you know, a sandbox. I mean, uh, somebody who would have no sort of real comprehension of um, the consequences of their actions. I mean, you know, we see again and again that Jared is somebody you know, when he was in his real estate firm, he didn't know his numbers cold. Steve Bannon noticed on the campaign he did, he wasn't comfortable reading a spreadsheet. Mm. You know, if one was being charitable, one could say that his lack of focus on details mm -hmm. is let him down with his security clearance. Form. Yes, that's right. That's <laughs> right. why he had to go back some record-breaking number of times on his forms because he kept forgetting his social security number or whatever. These intellectual shortcomings don't matter. Yeah. You're running a family business in New York, but they really do matter when you go into government and then when you take over our foreign policy. I feel as though Ivanka would be more sensitive to this. And it seems yes. as though Jared doesn't take in what to most people would be beyond mortifying, just cripplingly horrible, which is that we have intercepts saying that the Saudis and various other countries believe that they have Jared in their pocket. So it's it, not as though, oh, I'm just a great diplomat who can go to the Middle East and make all these friends. They are, as Trump used to say about Obama wrongly, but they are laughing at Jared Kushner. Yes, and, and, stand, and but the hubris, 
the blinds hint. I don't know if you saw, it was a painful interview that he gave or, or with Laura Ingram. And when, when she asked, you know, are you a risk or something about the security clearances? He laughed, but there is absolutely nothing to laugh about. But right there, you have the picture of an extraordinarily blind arrogance. I think that Ivanka, the State Department officials that I spoke to thought that Ivanka was cleverer when it when it came to this, that she would be much more careful that although there was a lot of inappropriate actions on her part, it was inappropriate to be on calls with foreign leaders to jump in with her father. It was inappropriate for her to even be in the room, given mm-hmm. she had her own business, that if you actually read a transcript of what she had said, uh, there would be nothing incriminating on it. But Jared is careless. There is a recklessness there. And, you know, let's see what happens. So very rarely when we talk about Trump, do I find us coming to the subject of ideology because I've been persuaded over these years that absent Bannon and Stephen Miller, there's no ideology, even a bad one at work for Trump, that the supreme selfishness and greed are kind of his modus operandi. But the Kushners are not without ideology. And this is why they had Benjamin Netanyahu to their house. Tell me about that. This is a huge point. And this is sort of in the book. And again, I thank you for reading it because it's really, really important that if you read the book carefully, you see that the grand chess master in all of this, the whole reason, the person who pushed for America to soften its relationship with Russia, the person who's who's sort of happy for Jared to have this relationship with MBS and MBZ in the Middle East. It's all driven by Bibi Netanyahu. Basically, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, his priorities shifted when Obama signed uh, the Iranian nuclear accord. So the Palestinian dispute was no longer his top concern. His top concern was Iran. And he had this belief, which no American security or intelligence expert that I've spoken to agrees with at all. But he has this belief that if we are cozy up to Russia, that Putin will help get the Iranians out of Syria. The intelligence experts I've spoken to call it fantasy on Bibi's part, but that is what he believes. And that is why he, for the first time, Israel was prepared to strike up what's called a grand bargain mm-hmm. with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, Jared um, turned to Saudi Arabia with the hope he had, you know, dollar signs in his eyes. He thought he believes that MBS will help finance his peace plan as well as who knows what else. Um, so I think that you cannot. Um, underestimate. This is all driven by Bibi Netanyahu. The question is, you know, in seven <coughs> days, <clears throat> sorry, you know, in seven days, Israel has an election and it'll mm-hmm. be very interesting to see what happens to Bibi Netanyahu, you know, the cat with nine lies, but we shall see. But, but And facing his own corruption charges, of course, which why he's the good mate for the Kushners. I realize that they've triangulated and made Iran the enemy. We had Adamantus on the show a year and a half ago or something talking about 
the new world disorder where Iran is the enemy and there are strange bedfellows everywhere, Israel and Saudi Arabia working together. But how did Jared Kushner go from being the son of someone who said a Mont Blanc pen was Nazi paraphernalia to married to a girl of partly German abstraction, extraction, a Gentile, and then to palling around with MBS, having what ev- everyone for a while fawningly called a bromance with the Saudis. I mean, we have a Muslim ban on the one hand, and then this kind of sick relationship between Jared and MBS that results in some really ominous things. And they're, of course, the main architects of 9-11. So how does something, I mean, just how did these things get flipped all around? I feel like I sort of understood things and sort of knew who everyone's enemy was. And then they changed it up on us in the last couple of years. So it comes back to this being, this is not normal, you know, this being a, a New York real estate family business. Yeah. This, this is business. That's how you have to look at it. Jared Kushner views the Middle East basically as a casino. Right. And you can invoke Iran or whatever, but at the end of the day, this is all about money. And there's Sheldon Adelson plays a part in that too, right? The major donor to Trump who is a casino operator and is very close to Netanyahu and the Israeli government. I think his wife's Israeli. That is also another way that this kind of nexus of, I guess, vaguely Zionist politics that, you know, want to relocate the embassy, that don't want a two-state solution, Netanyahu-style politics, that at least have some ideological coherence to it. And then all the looting in the Gulf and in these places that buy the Ivanka Trump collection and love casinos, astounding. It's just such a toxic combination. And again, coming back to what we talked about earlier, but all driven by Charlie Kushner. The person who's really in charge of Jared is his father. Let's talk about, no one seems as interested in this as I am, Comey's firing. (laughs) I mean, that everyone's interested in. But this one detail of Michael Wolff's book stuck in my mind. He says that it was Charlie Kushner who really wanted Comey fired because Charlie Kushner's, one of his prime directives is never go back to jail. And he thought if the FBI was sniffing around Trump, that they would sniff around Kushner companies. And I hadn't heard anyone repeat that until, and I think his source might be Steve Bannon on that. This is Michael Wolf. I hadn't heard anyone repeat that until you say in your book that Jared Kushner went to the mat for the Comey firing. No, 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 he did. And and, and I don't, you know, I make a, a policy of double sourcing everything. Yeah. So the fact that, uh, you know, I use the expression gung ho, um, Mm. that is not just from one person. Steve Bannon certainly was in the room Mm -hmm. when Jared, you know, made his impassioned plea to fire James Comey. But Steve Bannon was certainly not alone in that room. Gary Cohn would have been around, mm-hmm. Reince Priebus would have been around. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were plenty of people who heard Jared. And do you think he was trying to protect his father? He was trying to protect them both because right around that time, the press had got wind of the fact that Jared had had all these meetings with foreigners, including the Russian ambassador and Gorkov, the Russian banker connected to the Kremlin, mm-hmm. and that he mm-hmm. hadn't put any of these meetings on his security clearance forms. So, you know, as you know, Virginia, you know, that that is ordinarily, that could be considered a a, a felony. 
yeah. for which she went to jail. So the way it was interpreted by the people in the room was that Jared was actually desperately trying to, he, you know, he wanted Comey gone. Comey was then leading the investigation into, you know, where the possible collusion between Trump and the Russia camp, sorry, Russia and the Trump campaign. Yeah. And, you know, Jared was in the hot spot. He was trying to save himself. Right. The Russia investigation wasn't going well for him either. In general, these two real es- giant real estate families don't really like the FBI, it seems, no. for whatever reason. All right. One last question and ending on such a supremely solemn note is hard because, of course, there's lots of fizzy stuff in here, too. But the 666 story, the serious stuff is important here because Jared really has blood on his hands and in particular about the death of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, he still has a top secret security clearance that we all but know from a whistleblower he cheated to get. He used that clearance, as you say, to endear himself to MBS, to pretend that what he was doing was cracking down on corruption when he essentially jailed his rivals. The other thing is that Khashoggi seems to have commented the day after the 2016 election on Trump's policy toward the Middle East. I think he called it something so benign, like incoherent. And for that, was banned from Saudi Arabia, moved to the U.S., and then we know the story. He was a critic, but barely a critic, of the Saudi government. And that Jared continued his friendship with MBS as he ordered the torture and murder of Jamal Khashoggi and then stayed by his side as he covered it up. How do people talk about this now? You know, you look at patterns. You know, as I I end the book, I say, you know, Charles Kushner was apparently comfortable hiring a prostitute to set up his brother-in-law, film it, and then send it to his sister. And Jared Kushner Mm -hmm. is apparently very comfortable cozying up to brutal dictators who murder Washington Post journalists. And then he sits there silently and carrying on diplomacy in the dark and negotiations Mm -hmm. with this, you know, with this, this murderous regime. I mean, let's just hope that um, the what you know that Congress um, can actually bring about some action when it comes to taking away his security clearance. The one thing I, I do know, I was speaking to a former CIA mm-hmm. um, operative yesterday, that the CIA had, you know, are aware how dangerous Jared is. Um, all the intelligence agencies are and the CIA have made very um, sure to make sure he doesn't see what's called SCI. That's a yet higher level. That he absolutely doesn't see it. And they actually kind of make sure that Trump doesn't see it. They're giving him the bar letter version of the of the intelligence briefings. I've heard a bit of that, too. It does seem unlikely that Jared is getting a lot out of his briefings or really understands. I mean, if he was working behind the back of Tillerson and Mattis, he's not working off intelligence. He's working off, as you say, diplomacy in the dark and this kind of freestyling that has been incredibly dangerous. I mean, Among the deaths in Puerto Rico, the internment camps at the border, I think that Khashoggi's torture and death will really stay with us as part of the body count. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, both Jared and Ivanka thinking that they can message, you know, their reliance on public relations. They think they can message their way through anything. And I think that the Khashoggi thing is proof that that, people are not going to forget. And it really bothers them. Vicki Ward is the author of Kushner, Inc., the extraordinary story of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Thank you so much for being here and illuminating so many of these details. Oh, thank you, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me on. That's our show for today. 
say hello on Twitter and tell us what you think. We love hearing from you. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And hey, sign up for Slate Plus. Today is your day to become a Slate Plus member. It is very elite, and it only costs $35 for the first year. And that opens up a world of podcast wonder. You get Trumpcast and all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. You also get a ton of digital swag. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.